We're live right now. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, a very special guest. Her name is Yvonne Wakefield, and she's published two books about her experiences living in rural Oregon. And there's Babe in the Woods 1, Babe in the Woods Part 2, which will be published October 27th, 2021. The second book is titled Self-Portrait, but it details her existence kind of adapting to living in rural Oregon. Oregon, but she can talk more about that. So Yvonne, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your book, can you just go through the backstory? I mean, both books will be republished in 2021. Talk about uh, your background and what led you to make that decision to buy 80 acres up in the kind of central eastern forest of Oregon. Well, I was orphaned at an early age. My father died when I was nine and my mother died when I was 14. And the night she died, I laid in bed wondering, where am I going to be the next day, the next week? I couldn't even fathom thinking about where I'd be in one month. And I thought, if I can make it until I legal age, I knew I was going to receive a small inheritance. And if I could make it to the legal age, I would take that inheritance I would buy a case of cold duck, which is sparkling wine, get a cat, buy property in the wilderness, and go up there and write and do art. So literally the day I turned 18, I liquidated some of that inheritance, drove to Oregon, never driven to, never been to Oregon before. Um, and about all I knew about it was from reading books old history books and serendipitously found this 80 acre mountainside uh, just outside of John Day, Oregon. It's got virgin ponderosa pine in a creek. And so I bought the property, not knowing anything about building a log cabin. I had a book on how to build a log cabin and I was- what, Sorry to interrupt, but what year was that that you bought the property? Seven, 1975, when I was 18. So Oregon was still pretty rural at that time, not as packed as it was uh, maybe today. Not well, today. actually, it, no, on the contrary, because um, the lumber mills were busy. Interesting. And there's a lot of forestry, and that, that forestry practice is pretty much all disseminated. Interesting. So 1975, you bought 80 acres. What, what happened next? I mean, they're raw acres, right? Nothing's on it? No, it's wilderness. It butts up right. into the Strawberry Mountain wilderness. Um, at that point, I didn't even have a vehicle that was capable of driving up there. So I was actually walking most of the time. And I um, lived in a rat shack of an old miner's cabin um, while I was planning to build this cabin. And I had a book on how to build a log cabin, which I was referencing trying to cut my first tree with a bow saw that I bought for 50 cents at a flea market. Okay, I weighed 98 pounds. Anyway, it took me about two hours to saw through that first tree. And when it started to finally fall, it fell backwards, nearly creaming me. So I, eventually I found a, a man who was willing to work for me named Jim. And he became my mentor um, and taught me pretty much, I mean, taught me everything, guided me through every step of um, building the cabin. And we did, we used only hand tools. The only electronic tool we had was a gas powered chainsaw. So you like really went back rustic. I mean, some people dream about that uh, going back to the wilderness. I mean, so you built your own log cabin. What happened? I mean, how long did it take you to build it? 
Uh, I started to fall the first tree, I think it was in April. And that's when this, that's before global warming, when there was still a lot of snow and we were working in, you know, knee high snow. Um, and I eventually moved in, in around October of that year and then proceeded to stay there until January, until I got cabin fever. So, I mean, to get, to get up there, the last three miles are, you need four wheel drive. You need a good four wheel drive. And at that point I didn't have a a good four wheel drive. So there was a lot of pushing wheelbarrows up the mountain with supplies and everything in it. Right. So is there, there's no road, I, I assume. No, there is a road. No, there is a road. It's just not that great. The last three miles are, are very weather dependent. So in the winter, when I wintered it up there, literally I backpacked, I backpacked, well, I put my skis on my old cross country skis and I skied down about oh, a mile and I ditched them in the woods. And then I hiked over a mountainside and then got to my truck, hoped the block hadn't frozen, chained it up, drove it to the county road, unchained it, got groceries and you, you had to be packing back up by four o'clock that afternoon because um, the draws get dark by then. Wow. It's incredible. So you're in 1975, you're roughing it solo. Um, What kind of other, I mean, do you have, you have to heat it yourself. Did you get a uh, uh, iron stove up there yourself as well? Yeah, actually, I had a custom-built um, stove, a Frontier stove, which I'm still using today. In fact, I still go to the cabin. I was there last week putting gravel around the perimeter. But the stove is actually, um, it can function as a cook stove and a fireplace. But in order to get the heat, you've got to fall the tree. You've got to buck the tree up. You've got to split it up. So, I mean, you get warm just trying to get warm. Right. And do you, um, so how, when you first moved there, were you living at that uh, cabin exclusively in 1975? I lived there until the snow melted off. And then I moved up in a little pup tent below um, the cabin building site. So, I mean, it was really primitive living. You got up in the morning at sunrise, you built a little fire, um, ate whatever I ate. And then, you know, I was up at the building site by 8, 8 a.m. in the morning um, work till four or five and, you know, there's no running water or electricity. You get your water from the Creek and heat it from there. And, you know, I had flashlights. Right. And you go down when the sun goes down, there's nothing to do. So you arise uh, at sunrise and sundown. What was it like kind of coming from civilization to going to no civilization? Um, I think I was still in pretty much a lot of shock from what, I had gone through in the last four years in the foster care system. And I was so driven to create this home that I kind of shrugged off the, the idiosyncrasies of like living, living big with so little. Um, before I got my own chainsaw, I was cutting all my burnt, all my wood for fire with, with that bow saw, which was just, a big problem. So just learning to keep myself warm and fed and clean was a full-time job. It's unlike when you, like I have a, I'm building a beautiful new studio home right now. And 
so for instance, I was at the cabin last weekend. I spent four days up there hauling gravel and stuff. And, you know, I'm using the same tools I used when I was 18, same kerosene lamps, two new buckets, but I'm still getting the water from the same source. And it takes, um, and there's no phone connection or anything up there. So it takes like a, it takes like a day for me to kind of like deprogram from, you know, all that twitchy stuff you have punching buttons on keyboards and phones and that immediate gratification. But then I just, I, I, I slow down, you calm down and listening skills perk up, which are very necessary because you have, you have to know what's in the woods around you. And I read a lot. I mean, literally at this time of the year, it gets dark in that draw at four. So I'm reading books inside by four and get up at five. And where did you, where did you go through the foster care system? If you don't mind me asking. It was in um, St. Paul and St. Paul, Minnesota. Gotcha. So you came from Minnesota to Oregon. So you basically just went directly west, almost like the Oregon Trail. Huh? Uh, it was a very modern day version. I had a lot of amenities and a motorized vehicle. But I mean, pretty much what I did with building the cabin is what pioneers on the Oregon Trail did when they got to their destination. They cleared the land, which I did. Uh, and use that um, lumber to build their homes is what I did. And it's still there, right? So from 1975. Yeah, yeah. To, and so well, did you have any books? I mean, this is almost pre-internet, right? So how did you, did you just find this guy, Jim? He was your go-to guy to build the log cabin or how did you, how did you figure out how to do it? I actually found out about him from um, a local baker, a guy who owned a restaurant bakery downtown and then um, drove up and found him. He was married with, with two little kids and um, he just graciously offered to hire out to help me. I mean, without him, the cabin wouldn't have gotten done. But we used, um, we learned to use work in tandem as a team. So for instance, to get the logs up on the wall, we didn't have like pulleys or anything. So he would, when the walls got high, which, you know, about five feet because it's up on a elevated foundation. He would push the log up over the top of one of the logs that was already notched down. And I would lay on the end of the log and kind of cantilever balance it. And then he'd crawl up on the wall and he'd swing it over. So it's parallel to the next log. Um, That's intense. So you guys were almost like really roughing it back then. Um, what was it like adapting to the locals and kind of like the wildlife? Um, the wildlife was never a problem up there for me until two years later. And that's where the babe in the woods um, self-portrait comes in. Um, there was one year up there where I was barged in by rogue bears. Rogue bears aren't wild bears. Rogue bears, like the ones that were bothering me, were uh, relocated from a state park or a federal wilderness or somewhere because they become habituated to, you know, people's garbage and stuff. So I kept, um, had this really good Mormon family who also are always in my books, um, who helped me out all the time. And they, they taught me about the one-year plan for storage of food which I stored under my cabin, like grains and legumes and um, powdered milk and honey. 
in sealed containers. Well, I came back one summer and the bears had gotten under the cabin and pulled everything out and ransacked it all. <clears throat> well, it didn't stop from there. Um, they continued to, they were coming up on the porch at night. They got in the cabin when I was gone. I got in between a sow and a cub, a mama bear and a baby wow. bear. And that's when I had to decide it was going to either be me or them. And they get more aggressive once they get used to stuff too. They, and they're voracious, man. That's an eating machine. Typically a bear is like, just can't stop eating. It's well, kinda... I just found they were really brazen to come in, to come in the cabin in the middle of the day when I was down, they'd get, um, I started to put my ice chest, you know, there's no refrigerator. So I had an ice cooler with ice in it and I put it in the cabin and closed the door while they figured out how to get in the cabin. But, um, I've never had an issue with wild bears. In fact, I, I just saw one when I was up there last weekend. It was a cinnamon bear, and I was sitting on my porch sharpening that hatchet, and this cinnamon bear just started to come through the woods, and we just kind of looked at each other, and then once it saw me, it turned tail and ran. Right, so it was the ones that already had trouble somewhere else got shipped over to give you trouble, so what, how did you go through the steps to solve the problem? Well, I was a borderline vegetarian. I really didn't eat any meat. I didn't believe in eating things with fur. Um, so I ended up, I borrowed a gun, a rifle. Was it a rifle? I think it was a 30. 30-odd 30, I think you were. Yeah, 30-odd 30, which after, I mean, I'd never shot a gun in my life before that, but they, one of the old ranchers taught me how to shoot it. So anyway, one day when there were two bears coming across the creek, I just, I shot one and um, it wasn't, I wouldn't shoot a mother or a cub. It was a, it was a three-year-old bear, which was finally dispatched. Um, it was like one of the most horrible things, horrible days, weeks in my life, but it was like an issue of, it was either going to be me or them. Right. So it was you or the bears. Didn't like you have to track the bear down. Like it wasn't uh easy to find like you it took a couple days to track it down um it was two days so what happened i shot it at what was it third 300 300 feet i think it was 300 feet and it shot a um a rib bone out and so i when i shot it i saw it rise up in the creek and i started to run after it and i went oh my god you don't run after a wounded animal because it'll play dead and turn on you so i um Went downtown, I got or down the mountain, and the neighbors came up and we tracked it. We didn't find it then, but they found it. Was it was the next day or the, maybe yeah, two days later. Um, oh, guys, dogs with guys with, with bear hounds came and found it, and it was dead. Um, and then when a neighbor butchered it out, he'd found in the butt, the hind quarter, uh, an arrow, you know, from a bow and arrow with grizzle growing around it. So it was like, oh man, this this bear had problems with people before. People right, had somebody had tried to kill it before. Yeah. And so, I mean, it had been running around probably in a lot of pain with an arrow on its butt. But since then, I haven't had any issues. I've seen cougars um, in the nighttime right outside the, the cabin. Um, but I haven't had any issues with any animal since then. So, so the wildlife is there. What's it like living in a very rural environment with families very far away? I mean, how do you adapt to that? 
Well, as I get older now, I have to be a lot more cautious. Also because I have uh, one hip replaced and another's going to get replaced. I used to be a long distance runner. Um, I don't take chances like I used to because if I get hurt, that's it. I'm the only one up there. To take yeah, didn't, care of me. didn't you tell a story about another guy who like died? He was a miner or something like that back in the 19th century or something? Like, oh, yeah. He's, he was actually the story that I heard. He was coming. He was an old miner um, mining the tailings outside of Sumpner. And the story I heard was that they found him in the spring dead slump near a tree that he was probably coming out um, to get some supplies for winter and just it gave his heart gave out heart gave out or something are they still finding gold up in that area i don't think so there's you know there is active um camps and claims i i can't say for sure but how i mean how did you adapt living till you said you found a mormon family that was helpful I mean, did you find the people to be friendly and helpful or did you find them to be like they didn't want you on their property? They didn't like outsiders. You know, to the contrary, um, with the exception of with the rare exception, all the people who I've met in John Day um, have been extremely helpful and caring and nurturing. And they were the ones that taught me how to retrust people. Um, so, for instance, there's a couple in there who I who I dedicate the book to, Dell and Annabelle Tayton. They were an older couple. You know, they went through the Depression. He raised kids on earning a dollar a day driving fence posts. And maybe he got a bacon powder biscuit if he was lucky. And those people who had very little to give were always so giving to me and so helpful to me. Um, I think they saw this kind of wafy little girl who was doing the kind of work that they didn't have any choice not to do. So for instance, Annabelle actually did live up as a, as a child up in the same area where I eventually built my cabin during a time, you know, when they, there was no electricity, you, you heated by your wood, would you cut? Right. I mean, did you find yourself adapt? Did you have to bring all of your food stores in or were you the type who kind of adapted to kind of seeing you know, what else you could find in that area to eat? Or was it all brought in? No, basically, um, well, I wasn't a hunter and I wouldn't, I won't fish the creek. I actually hand feed the trout. Um, so no, basically everything was brought in on my back. Sometimes I'd eat um, rose hips. Actually, I use, I use the rose hips a lot, but no, everything it was brought in on my back and, or, later when I got a truck in the truck. But I was thinking about this the other day when I was up at the cabin. Um, I had a, you know, those pre-bagged salads you can buy? Mm -hmm. Well, you've got a plastic wrap that has the lettuce and then you've got a plastic wrap that holds the condiments and a plastic wrap that holds the dressing. And you've got all this plastic for one salad. And when I lived up there alone, I realized I never really generated garbage except maybe a couple cans if I ate green beans because I, I hand ground all my breads and cereals, wheat um, and bulgur until the bear. Um, and so I learned to adapt eating very simply, but very well. 
Interesting. Did you just wing it or did you have a recipe book or anything or? No, I just. So you just adapted over time. That's interesting. And how did that progress? I mean, how long did you literally stay at this? I mean, the cabin's still there. How long were you actively in that rural environment? Well, I still am. So I left that January because it was, it was just getting to be too much cabin fever. You have to realize it was by then I turned 19 I'm living in the wilderness totally alone. I'd go out and I'd see people once every 10 days to two weeks when I went to the library, washed my clothes and got groceries. Otherwise I was totally isolated. No radio, no phone, no computer. It was just books, drawing and working out in the woods. And so by that January, I realized um, I was starting to atrophy mentally and spiritually. So I went out, I went to Eugene, enrolled in college and then that started this um, it's a seven year period where I either had jobs that let me off for the whole summer or I was in between schools. So I, for seven years, I spent three months alone, three summer months alone up at the cabin. And that's where Babe in the Woods self-portrait takes off. So um, by then I, I, I get into an art school and I'm starting to formally learn to paint. Um, it was actually an art guild. So I was getting a lot of traditional instruction. And then summer came and I would just go up to the cabin and paint, um, write. And the bears, and this is kind of pivotal point in Babe in the Woods self-portrait, it was the bears that kind of inspired me to build a log studio. So originally I thought, well, I'm going to build a log studio as a post log cabin building test. I'm going to use logs. I can manipulate by myself. I'm going to do everything by myself. And then the bears got so bad. I thought I'm going to make a bear proof studio. So then it ended up, oh, now you have to dig this huge hole in the ground to pour uh, a cement walled cellar. So that took one summer. And then the the next two summers um, were consumed by the the building of this log studio, which I did need help with the roof and the foundation. And interspersed with that is um, some little vignettes about how I take some time off and I'll actually go outside and paint. Right. So you're kind of adapting to being out there alone. I mean, what, what's it like when you're alone for 10 days? Do you just talk to yourself? No music? Well, how do you, how do you survive really? Well, you've got to like yourself and you've got to like your environment and you got to trust your actions. That's the first thing. Um, it used to be when I first went up there, I'd spend 10 days and I go, wow, this is so great. But I'd have like all these voices in my head of, you know, I'd had this conversation with this person. And then pretty soon those, the voices that of the people that you've encountered over the last half like float away and you start to have developed this language with the environment. Um, I think about the second year or third year, I did get a little dog and I've always had little dogs up there. So they help, but um, I'm pretty content with the discipline I have. Um, and I think that's one way, that's one reason I can be up there the way I am. So I, I am very disciplined. I get up the same time every morning, uh, dress in clean clothes, um, read or write in the morning. And then at 
sunrise when the sun's up, then I'll change into work clothes and I'll work in the woods and then take a break. And then, you know, by late afternoon, change back into clean bathe, change back into clean clothes and um, read or write. Interesting. And do you find that you miss uh, comforts? What comforts do you miss while you're up there food wise or other things you take for granted? The only thing I miss is a vacuum cleaner. Interesting. Um, because we built the floors. So there's like cracks, which you, which you need to be, but um, I'm really a cleanliness person and I, I sweep and I wash the floors with, bleach and everything all the time, but I really do miss the vacuum cleaner. I mean, everything else I can carry up on my back. And this is, this is such an oxymoron is I have a, a robot vacuum cleaner for my new home. And I thought, wow, this really works good here. And I thought, well, I'm going to take it to the cabin. And then I thought, oh, that would be such a violation. And then I thought if that robot saw that floor, it would probably like jump over the porch, and commit suicide because <laughs> it's, it's got 40 years. I mean, it's really clean, but there's 40 years of, of dust up there. Right. So so how long, I mean, you say you have a separate house now. What point did you say, I've had enough with this uh, super rural existence. I'm going to start breaking it up. I mean, you said you went to Eugene, enrolled in art class. Like, how did your relationship with the wilderness develop over time? Um, it's pretty much the same. I mean, I, I'm the same there now as I was when I was 18. Um, I never, well, I thought maybe when I was 18, I thought I'd live there year round, but that, that's not a reality to maintain sanity. Um, so one of the reasons I am in the Dallas, Oregon now, is I moved from Port Townsend, Washington, which was like 10, 12 hours from the cabin, um, and I moved to the Dallas, Oregon, so I could be um, 200 miles away as opposed to 500. So I go there at least twice a month now um, for three, four days at a time. Is it still uh, not electric, no electricity? Still nothing, not a thing has no changed. No amenities, wow. It still is the same cabin as I built in 1975. Oh, amazing. So no fires, nothing's burned it down or anything like that? Huh? Well, in 2015, which is really interesting, I was going up that day in, I think it was August, yeah, to edit Babe in the Woods, Building a Life One Log at a Time. I had the manuscript and I saw this big plume of smoke near John Day. Anyway, turned out there was a huge forest fire barreling down Canyon Creek and I went up to the cabin, you could see smoke all over, and I knelt by the creek and these huge moss, burning mosses all of a sudden started to fall down all around me and embers. So I immediately left and on the way met some forest firefighters coming up. And so they flagged the cabin and put pumps on it. They put three pumps on it, which saved the cabin from being burned down, the, the fire actually came up to the property line. Wow. So it was so serendipitous that I was actually up there that day, coming down, met the forest firefighters. So I was lucky. And do you, when you're up there, I mean, what are the benefits of living up there? Or does it, what does it feel like when you come back into civilization? Um, 
when I'm up there by the first, by the second day, you start to harden up. I mean, I'm very active. I'm still very athletic. Um, but you start, your body starts to harden up because you're hauling water, you're splitting wood. Um, if I'm working in the woods, I burn a lot of brush, pile out of brush, um, because I maintain the health of the forest. Um, and then, you know, and, and, and every time you heat water, you have to build a fire for that. So then I come back to civilization, to my home, and it's like you flick on a light, you flick on a switch, and you've got heat and water. But the one thing it's also taught me is um, to live, I live very frugally in utilizing resources. Like I don't leave the faucet on when I'm brushing my teeth or anything because all the water I consume at the cabin, I haul up in buckets. And so that's how I think like, you know, if it takes four minutes to heat up water from the water faucet in, in your house, you go, wow, that's like 20 buckets of water just down the drain. So a lot of the way I live at the cabin is still the way I live in civilization. Interesting. So you've learned the techniques, rationing and stuff like that. And how, um, like, what would you do over if somebody had this dream of going to a very rural place and building a log cabin, what advice would you give them? Do your homework first, have a, a support system, have enough money to put in a good road. That's, that's like a number one thing. Um, and just persevere. Be, be prepared to persevere probably. Yeah. I mean, there were many days, like I was so physically tired when I was building, um, that it was just like so hard to just say, Oh, I can't get up there again. But you just, you just put, you build your life one log at a time. I go, okay. Well, like when I was doing the studio by myself, I went, okay, my goal is to get four logs up today. That's my goal. And once I've got those four logs up, I don't have to do anything else. Well, some days it would take me all day to get those four logs. And it was, just, and it's that same principle when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I go, Oh, I don't want to be inside in this office writing and researching. I want to be outside, but you have to get X amount of pages written today. Um, and then you can go on to the next step. And I would like physically make myself not leave the office until I got X amount of pages done. And that was a, that was a discipline that I believe I established when I was building the cabin. Gotcha. So you got learned discipline, learned things from the experience that you apply to other aspects of your life. Would you agree with that? Oh yes, definitely. And so, I mean, you, you've had this 45 years, you've had this experience up there. What, what's it, I mean, rewarding. What do you, do you enjoy? Do you want to get rid of it? What's your kind of overall broad angle view of your experience building a, your own home in the rural part of Oregon? Well, it's not going anywhere and I'm not selling it. It's, it's going to stay that way forever. So you will but just, you know. what I would hope to do is after I'm gone and I'm pretty ordinary, so it might be a while before I'm gone, um, is to have that log cabin taken apart and reconstructed on the grounds of a library 
where people can actually go in and read in a rural structure um, and experience what it would be like. Interesting. Yeah. I think they did that with uh, Jack London had a log cabin in California and they brought it down to Oakland and reconstructed it to see where he was when he was writing. I think uh, was it White Fang or whatever it was. I think it was in I think it was in Sacramento. Well, I'm pretty sure I saw it in Oakland last year, so maybe it was a different one or something separate. But I think that there was the whole intent was to show like this is how people used to live in log cabins back in the day, but maybe not. Um, and you said this book, the second part, Self Portrait, is out October 27th, correct? October 26th, yeah. And there's 26th. Pre-order, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, but it, it's actually going to be available wherever books are sold. Gotcha. And uh, the first one is republished this year too, right? 2021. The Building yeah. a Life One Log at a Time. Correct. And so they could get it when they also, you have, if people want to reach out to you, you have a website, correct? Yeah, it's, you know, www.yvonnepepin.com wakefield.com and it's actually under it's it's up now but um, there's going to be a whole new website um, also featuring my art gotcha and what style of art do you do you, i mean i i saw some landscapes in the book is that what your kind of main uh style is in my painting styles yes that's what i prefer and that's also one of the reasons i go to john day is because i love painting the valley down there um and I'm a, uh, a visceral painter. If I don't feel it, I don't paint it. And I really feel the geological formations in the John Day Valley area. But when I, um, I taught art in Kuwait in the Middle East for six years, I was a university professor there. And I couldn't paint the landscape because it was basically not enticing to me. And it was too dangerous for a woman to go out. And it was too hot. So... I found pomegranates and I found that by cracking those open, I could find the same inspiration that I found in the geological faults and and mesas of the John Day Valley. So for six years, I painted pomegranates in Kuwait and had actually three major exhibitions on that. So my website also shows um, some of those pomegranate works. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So you went from the high mountain to the dry, hot weather of Kuwait. That's quite a geological change. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Oh, no, I just appreciate um, you allowing me on my show. And I hope people enjoy the books. And if anybody wants to contact me, you can contact me through my website. Right. And it's Yvonne Pepin, like Jacques Pepin, P-E-P-I-N, Wakefield. I'll put it in the show notes so it'll be there your website. If people want to reach out to you, they can contact you. If they have anybody wants any questions uh, to go build their own log cabin and their experiences, you're probably, I mean, if you have 45 years of experience, you could probably be a consultant. Uh, I could, but I need somebody to do the heavy lifting now. Right. Yeah. Anyway, again, the title of the book, the second book, which I read is Babe in the Woods. I did not read through the first book, but that book will be out on the 26th, and the author's name again is Yvonne Wakefield. So, Yvonne, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, and have a great day. You too. Take care. Stay there. Stay there. All right. That was-